With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are one day removed from a very exciting wild game four of the NBA Finals that left us even at two games apiece. Things are really starting to heat up here, of course, as we head down the home stretch of the final series of the season. So today we're going to tackle all the things that are on our mind by asking and answering 10 pressing questions. It's something we do a lot here on Nerd Sesh, a format that serves us well. And I think that we should start by just reflecting on what we just saw because so many wild, memorable things happened in that game four. Logan, what do you think you'll remember most from game four going forward? There's a lot of things uh, that I think you can take away from game four and a lot of things to look at. Uh, The first two, uh, we'll go with the two leading scorers. Um, Devin Booker finally shows up, um, has a immaculate game when the rest of his team or. I don't know. The other two big three out there in Phoenix really didn't uh, perform extremely well. CP3 really let them down at the end. Um, I I thought late. It was frustrating. Obviously, uh, Booker picking up his fifth foul, which plays into the referees. uh, The other foul call that was uh, missed out on. Those things are important, but I also thought that, like, I don't know, Carson, I felt that D-Book tried to do a little too much by himself at the end, and I can't really blame him because... Nobody else was doing anything offensively. Nobody else was knocking down shots. So I can't really fault him for trying to go full takeover playoff hero mode, but uh, I'm going to remember that a little bit for D-Book trying to do a little too much. Again, uh, in saying that, I'm going to remember this for Chris Paul not boxing out Drew Holiday. That rebound with uh, 50 seconds was really crucial, followed up into the next possession with the turnover. Uh, Kind of a microcosm of the whole game for Chris Paul. He just had a... One of the worst games I've seen from him in a very long time. Um, that's another thing to take a look at. Uh, another big thing I'll take away from this series, you can count on Chris Middleton late. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, you said it, Carson, last night. My dad said it. Uh, our good friend Peyton T. Gallagher said it. How the hell did Chris Middleton get 40? It just crept up on you. He scores, I believe it was 10 in the last, like, two minutes. The Suns score three points. Um there's a lot of big things to take away from this game. I'd say my big takeaway is uh, it was proven tonight that the that 
Booker can't do it himself. Um, and I thought the referees had a little too much uh, of a hand in how this game turned out. Um, the two missed calls, the bad call, um, the ball that bounced out on P.J. Tucker, those I would say are my biggest takeaways uh, from game four. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to touch on there. And I think it has to start with Book because this game was memorable for him for a number of reasons. And I think that that's interesting what you said about how he wasn't really elevating others. He was trying to do it all himself. That's definitely true. I mean, this is not a game where he was looking to facilitate, ends with only two assists, but it was the kind of dynamic, successful hero ball performance for so much of it that you remember forever. Like, the difficult shot making was otherworldly. He was 14 of 19 from eight feet out to the three-point line, just dominating that mid-range area. Floaters were on consistently, and he did a really nice job, I thought, of getting Drew Holiday on his back a number of times in this one so he could create himself that little bit of space. But even when there was no space, five of seven on fadeaways, it was just like every time he pulled up, turned around, threw up a floater, you felt that it was going to go in. 38 points through three. I really wish that... Foul trouble was never a consideration here because he ends up playing 39 minutes. It didn't obviously fully take him out of things there, but you disrupt a little bit of the rhythm and the momentum, and I don't know what he would have been capable of had he never had to leave with that fifth foul because this felt like it should have been one of the most special scoring games in the finals we have seen in a very long time because the bar for a single game in the finals is Elgin Baylor with 61. After that, though, I don't know how many people have scored in the 50s. Not many. Like, he was approaching true all-time, people will remember this forever stuff. Ends up not getting there. Part of that is the result. Part of that is he didn't really get the opportunities in the fourth. Again, it became the Chris Paul show. Part of that was when he was off the floor sitting with that foul trouble. But I just had this feeling the instant he went out that the Suns were not going to have it, that they were going to lose grip of the lead that they had. Even though this is a group that throughout the year I've had so much faith in their depth, in Chris Paul, you could just tell that nobody else really had it in that one. So the refs obviously tried to do them a favor, tried to keep Devin Booker in that game. I'll be honest, that missed call on him tying up, intentionally fouling Drew Holiday may be the second most memorable thing for me in this game. That was unbelievable. And of course, that's obvious. We don't need to spend forever on it. But like, I don't know how that happens without the league taking some sort of action. And I know that you said initially in our group chat with friends of the show, Peyton T. Galler and Gabe Swartz, that it was like a makeup call. But the thing is, the fifth foul on him was legitimate. What it would be making up for was, as you just mentioned earlier, the messed up out of bounds call on P.J. Tucker, which then led to the frustration foul on the other end on that rebound. Like the ripple effect of bad officiating into more bad officiating is always remarkable. Robot refs are the future. I can't wait for that to happen. I'm just glad that it ended up not impacting the outcome of this game because then people would have so many gripes. It would draw the 2002 Western Conference Finals comparisons. People would say, this is rigged. Milwaukee fans would never sleep again. You know what? If you're going to win, you want to win straight up. And I think that that's what the Suns obviously still have the opportunity to do. So I think all around memorable for Book. Middleton was fascinating because you talk about how you can trust him late in games. I'm still not there. You could trust him last night, but you can tell when he just has it going. Like he becomes unconscious, but he doesn't do that every time out. He does that every other time or every three times. And the low end of Chris Middleton is so much lower than it is for most other superstars, as we've talked about time and again 
not superstars, I should say. He's not at that level, but stars. When he's on, he looks like a superstar scoring the basketball. It's remarkable to me that this ends up being the first game in 20 years in which players on opposing teams both have 40 in a finals game. There are just so many things that are going to be the legacy of this one. The Giannis block, which we haven't even touched on yet, a potentially game-saving play, meeting Aiton up there, and just taking away that lob. That was a special demonstration of his athleticism. Drew Holiday being absolutely awful, and we'll talk more about his struggles later. That's something I will remember. CP just being off his game. Like This feels like the kind of game that I really am going to think of years and years from now do you agree on that front, that this was really that kind of all-time moment? I mean, this was the biggest finals game I think we've seen in this series. Or I'd say it's the most, I think it's the most fun one we've seen in the past two years, too. Yeah, this is a massive game. I, I want to touch on, because you bring up some more of the refs' calls. I want to ask you, Carson, like, I thought there were a lot of calls on both sides that benefited the Suns, that benefited the Bucks. uh, Again, you mentioned the two calls on D-Book because it wasn't just one. I mean, yes, it was a really bad foul on Drew. Then there was another one, and they didn't call that one either, and they let Book stay in. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, who do you think benefited more from the refs' calls? Because I thought on that P.J. Tucker call, we saw a massive momentum swing right after that, and the Suns just fell. I'm not saying that that was the entire reason because of it, but to just ignore the Bucks, uh, how they benefited from that one call, I think would just be overlooking things. So I guess one, do you think both teams benefited from calls late in this game and who benefited more? I think the net benefit has to go to the Suns. When you keep your best player on the floor, when he should not be on the floor, that is a very difficult deficit to overcome for the other team as far as the officiating gains go. I will say, I know some people were upset about the foul call on the Jay Crowder 3, which could be another thing that goes in favor of the Suns. I agree with you on the PJ call, but at the end of the day, that's one moment in the third quarter. It ends up not killing the Suns because Book did get back out there and was able to stay out there. And at the end of the day, I don't think officiating determined the outcome of this game in either direction, and I very rarely think that it does. It's frustrating officiating, of course, having human error that is not from the players impacting games like this at all. But at the end of the day, that to me is not the legacy of this one. And the part of the officiating that I will remember is kind of just a humorous moment where I don't know how you can do anything but laugh, unless you're a Bucks fan, when Book, again, is trying to foul Drew Holiday, which is such a stupid play. You're going to send an 80% free throw shooter to the line and just leave the game politely? All right, fellas, did my job. Made him work for his two points. I'm out of here. Just mind-bogglingly stupid. Like, yeah, Book's a competitor. Sure, he wants to make the competitive basketball play. But that's not a great play. He's not making a play on the ball. He's just (laughs) fouling a guy so that he can still, in all likelihood, get two points. Blew my mind. Wild moment. But, yeah, at the end of the day, I think officiating favored the Suns. But... I think that the Bucks just played the better basketball game and they deserve to win. So I think that that leads into our second question here, which is now that we have seen the Bucks come back and even this up at two games apiece after, again, this didn't make sense to me in the moment, but people were saying, oh, the Bucks are so clearly outclassed, hashtag Suns and four and all that. Do you think that the Suns more significantly dropped off in games three and four, or did the Bucs just take their level up that much higher? Which of the two do you think was more significant in the Bucs evening this back up? I don't necessarily think either is the case. I think we can look at um, 
isolated incidents from both games. Uh, the Devin uh, not getting any help from his teammates in this latest game and the game previous, him having a cold shooting night. I think the biggest difference, though, in these last two games has just been the Bucks' defensive scheme. Uh, they have listened to us, Carson, uh, more importantly you, because you suggested this first off. You put Giannis at the five, or and sometimes we've seen that they put him up top, but he, uh, I believe you said this last episode, um, and that five-man lineup has been the best, uh, what, in the... I, what, the best of all the playoffs? That five-man lineup of P.J., Middleton, Holiday, Connaughton, and then Antetokounmpo with the five. I just think that's the biggest difference. The Bucks are finally making adjustments defensively, and they know that that is where their best defense is going to come from. I also think that if we are going to point out um, a big difference, another thing that you said at the start of this series, Carson, the Bucks have won this rebounding battle emphatically. And, like, DeAndre Ayton has been a monster on the boards and he has been trying to keep Giannis at bay but just like I mentioned late in that game 40 seconds left everybody you have like six guys in the paint who ends up with that board Drew Holiday because he boxed out Chris Paul he burns 30 seconds off gives them one possession instead of potentially two uh I think it has been the two biggest things that you pointed out in rebounding and the Bucks finally making defensive adjustments uh that is why the Bucks have won these last two games and I don't think no, I don't think the Suns are outclassed. They played a pretty good two games. It's just the Bucks may have made big-time adjustments, and the Suns really haven't. And I do think there's a couple other factors in there. Like, for example, CP and Book each had a significant off day. Each of them played, respectively, one of their worst games of the playoffs. Book in Game 3, CP in Game 4. The Suns as a team, 16 of 60 from deep over those two games. They're not normally a team that's defined by three-point shooting. But that's pretty painful when you have back-to-back nights hovering around 25%. But you mentioned some of the other keys as well. The glass has been so massive. And I'm glad that I highlighted this as a key beforehand because the Bucks are plus 19 in offensive boards over two games. I mean, you are securing yourself additional shots at 20 points in each of those games. 10 extra possessions in each of those games. But they're also plus 17 in the turnover margin over these two games. They're plus 17 in free throws made, which I think reflects their aggression getting to the bucket. And they're also plus 22 in points in the paint. They're plus 25 in fast break points. They are getting out in transition a bit more regularly. And Giannis has been phenomenal there. And the Suns haven't all that effectively built a wall to take those chances away from him. So I just think that it's been a combination of the two. Like some things have gone wrong for the Suns that you don't expect to continue to go wrong. But the Bucs have played to their strengths. They have, as you mentioned, figured out the defensive end here. And I think that that's probably part of the reason why we haven't seen CP and Book just casually walk to 20-something and 30 efficiently like they were in games one and two. It's because there is no Brooke Lopez to exploit anymore. By game two, the Bucs had actually pretty much made the switch already, but Book and CP still went off. But so now, when Giannis is out on the perimeter... I feel as good about him guarding those guys as I do anybody on this Bucks roster. Like, there's been a couple times where CP has maybe put Giannis on skates a little bit, but obviously, the dude was a depoy in large part because of his ability to defend the perimeter. One-on-one defense may not be his strength, but he's still certainly better at it than most. So, I think the Bucks have absolutely found another level here. Game three, all of their stars were pretty much clicking. Middleton wasn't exceptional. Holiday was pretty good, though. Giannis was obviously otherworldly. Game four, they find a way to win, even though Middleton wasn't necessarily grooving early. He was just phenomenal down the stretch, and Holiday was disgustingly bad again. So, 
as things currently stand, I'm just interested in seeing where does the momentum go from here? Because I think we've seen a great version of the Suns. We've seen a great version of the Bucks. We've seen uglier versions of both teams as well. And it feels very appropriate that right now we're sitting at two games apiece because neither team has separated themselves. Although the Bucks maybe have figured more things out and made more positive adjustments over these first four games. Yeah, I think we've seen... I, I don't really think, like... I think it's exactly as we expected. Like, my opinion has not changed on where we stand in this series. This I think we're going to go seven. Like, I don't even think there's a big momentum swing. Like, this was a really tight game that could have gone either way. Like, if I'm the Bucks, yes, I am ecstatic that you do not go down 3-1 and instead tie this series up at 2-2. This was a massive game for Milwaukee, but I'm not walking away super confident. The Suns could have easily uh, stolen this game. Absolutely. And I guess you could say it took a superhuman effort from Book to get them there, but it also took CP being completely off. It took Aiden not having an impactful game offensively as a scorer, but Drew was off on the other end. Like, I just think we're looking at two really even teams. All I'm saying is I feel like the Bucks have figured out more stuff, and maybe that's because the Suns came into this series with their strategy and their approach to all these different matchups figured out, and it was more simple. It was kind of just run, pick, and roll with our couple of best players, Roll guys stepped up early, and for the Bucks, ever since then, it's been putting together those additional pieces. How do we play to our strengths? How do we get to the bucket? How do we maximize Giannis's value and attack and transition and all that? And just the fact that they've been able to do that has been very impressive and has certainly changed my outlook on the Bucks. Even though I expected this to be a very competitive series, I thought it would go seven. Seeing them actually do it in the finals does really matter for me, given just the hideous history of this team in the biggest spots. So with that, let's pose our third question here. Because as ugly as things may have been at some points for the Bucks, not as much in this series, one guy has been almost spotless. And that's Giannis Antetokounmpo. So the question is this. Giannis is currently having the best finals debut since who? And you know what? I'll toss this one to myself, a little bit of a self-alley-oop because this is sort of my realm, Logan. We both love to delve into the historical side of it, but God do I love it when it comes to the NBA. And I think the answer is that this is the best finals debut we've seen in quite some time. I think that Jimmy was phenomenal last year, like <laughs> as good as you could expect a player of his overall caliber to be, had some signature performances, that 40-point showing to keep the heat in that series in game four, was it? And throughout, I think, ends up averaging like 26, 8, and 10 very efficiently. That really is, to me, an all-time performance that should be the defining moment of Jimmy Butler's legacy. But I think that this is the best first time in a finals we've seen from somebody since Dwayne Wade in 2006, who in some ways has interesting parallels to this series. And I'm not going to say that Giannis is going to do what he did at the end of the day, but what I will say is this. The Heat went down 2 nothing there. They were against another team that had a great player at the top who hadn't been to that stage yet in Dirk Nowitzki. Neither team really had anybody who was playing as a true second star. I mean, the Heat had Shaq, of course, but he was not particularly great in the finals or in that playoff run as a whole. And if you're looking at the rest of the guys on the Mavs, I believe that Josh Howard was their second leading scorer. So I think that both the Bucks and the Suns right now are better teams than those two were. But it's interesting in that it was sort of a changing of the guard. Like, 
we were transitioning out still of the Kobe Shaq era because it was just really cemented the year before that they were never going to be making the comeback. And you had the Spurs as kind of that placeholder. But then you have these two up-and-coming, really promising teams, kind of like what we've seen here with the Suns and the Bucks. But the parallel is the Heat went down 2 nothing, and then it literally just became D-Wade go absolutely superhuman, and he did. Last four games, he was 42 a game, 73 free throws attempted. Just a kind of utter physical and athletic dominance and insistence on getting to the rim that is in some ways comparable to Giannis Antetokounmpo. I don't expect him to do that, but I do think that what he's doing right now, you know, comfortably above 30 a game, dominating on the glass, playmaking at a high level, changing the game defensively, it's the most impressive thing that we've seen since then. And is just up there all time historically. There have been other great debuts. MJ in 91 just puts on a playmaking display like he did almost at no other point in his career against the Lakers. You have other greats like Kareem coming onto the scene. AI in 2001, even in defeat, was phenomenal, particularly in that game one, putting up 48 in a loss. Rick Barry in 1967 comes onto the scene, puts up 41 a game. Both he and AI end up with losses. So, Maybe part of where Giannis finishes in this all-time conversation is dependent on whether or not they finish the job because people will never remember that Jimmy Butler series like they should because he didn't win. And even though his team was outmatched and that was mostly out of his hands and they were injured, that's how people remember things. It's based on whether or not you win. So I think Giannis will have to finish the job to probably be remembered as he should be unless it becomes like, Jerry West in 1969, LeBron in 2016, where you're so wildly impressive in defeat that people remember it forever regardless. We'll see if he can get to that point, but man, has he been special right now. What do you think? Anything else that I left out? Any parallels you see? Any comments? Uh, I mean, I think you highlighted the three most recent ones. Uh, D-Wade, I think, has been is one of the most impressive and the most impressive recent uh, finals debut. Uh, and yeah, I think you're completely right about Jimmy too, because he was the first guy that I was going to note. Yeah, it's just last year, but I didn't think Jimmy could carry a team like that. Um, the only other guy I'd shout out, um, definitely not as impressive when it comes to just like baseline numbers and he had one hell of a supporting cast around him. Uh, I would say Kawhi in 2014, uh, 18, six and two and on 61, 58 shooting splits, you know, playing tough defense on LeBron. I don't think it's nearly as impressive as what Giannis is doing right now, especially mm -hmm. when he's matched up uh, on a player, you know, defensively the caliber of a DeAndre Ayton. Uh, but those are the three guys. Uh, but, nah, bro, I thought you put a pretty nice bow on that. Um, like, I want to ask you this then, a little something broader. Like, do you think, uh, granted, we're only through four games, is this one of the most impressive finals performances you've ever seen? 100%. Particularly because I never thought that Giannis specifically could do this. Like, I have had so many questions about him throughout his career. And I think that this is the big picture significance of this. Because, yeah, we can rank it amongst the all-time greats or whatever. But it feels like he is overcoming almost every question, every criticism that we've had about him as a superstar player. Like, not to the point where you can say, oh, he can close big games for you. But if that's not your expectation, then you kind of take that out of the picture. And if Middle can, can do that, then he doesn't need to. Like, it's what people say about viewing him as a big, as a Shaq, not as a guy who needs to be a perimeter closer. Now, I will say, in today's NBA, most great bigs can actually still be your closer. Like, Jokic can close for you. Embiid 
Not ideal, but he can close for you better than Giannis. That's not out of the question as a criticism. Neither is his lack of a shot. Neither is, to a certain extent, the diminishing value he has in transition when he just doesn't have as many opportunities, and that's what makes him so special. So maybe I shouldn't have said every question, every criticism. All I'm saying is that he has made it so those things don't matter right now in the biggest stage. We saw them matter in 2019 against the Raptors when he was torn apart. We saw them matter in 2020 against the Heat when that wall was built again and he just could not dominate in the way that you expect. We saw it this year against the Nets when he was tricked, basically, into taking a bunch of foolish pull-up jumpers and almost destroyed his own team that way and the offense stagnated and it looked like they were done for So all of that is true. All of that is still on his resume. But he just dropped 40 in back-to-back games, had another really strong game four, and right now is going right at the Suns with a level of fearlessness and dominance that is just very, very rare to see. So I have been the guy who has been critical of Giannis for a very long time. And he's been on the back half of my top 10 as far as players who I actually want to win a title because of all the questions I have about playoff value and closing and all that. And he's still more flawed than a lot of those guys, no doubt, because he still needs to have a great perimeter creator like when Chris Middleton is on to be able to truly contend. He needs that closer alongside him. He needs the right kind of roster built around him with shooting and all these things. So yes, those are requirements that other players maybe don't need who are more malleable, who are more diverse offensively. But When things are set up well enough for Giannis, we are now seeing that he can play at this all-time level. So it's just really sinking in for me that he's doing what I didn't really think he could do. And yes, the circumstances were favorable. The East was torn to shreds, really just the Nets, by injury. And they barely got out of that series. It wasn't pretty. And then he faced a Hawks team that you don't expect to see in the conference finals. But they got in that position, and now... He is doing everything you could ask of him and more. So what do you think? Did I give him too much credit or does that feel about right? No, it feels about right. And I think you hit it uh, with a few words relative to expectations. It is all about what you expect out of Giannis. And uh, yeah, uh, Bill Simmons said it a while back about him being a Shaq. And I think it's, it's the perfect comparison because Giannis is great at doing that, at dominating the interior. And I want to bring back up that block you talked about on Aiden. It's impressive physically. The most impressive thing that about it is just his instincts, the reaction time. Like, he immediately knew where that ball was going to be and that it was an oop, like, on sight. He didn't think about where to put his arm. He knew that he was—he saw the play before it happened, and it's amazing. Uh, and I don't know, like, if he can be that much of an interior force to where he is rattling DeAndre Ayton to shooting that bad, where Ayton is settling for jump shots— Yes, relative to expectations for him dominating the interior, for being a pure paint beast. Yes, Giannis has quelled all those things. And yes, you're right. It's not like he doesn't have any problems. He can't shoot. He still takes a bunch of head-scratching jumpers when he shouldn't. He has a horrible jump shot. Uh, like, his form is horrible still. Like, But when you don't want that out of him, no, he's perfect when he plays like the player that you need him to be. And that is rolling to the rack solely being on the interior, yes, he's uh, he's maximized his abilities by focusing on what he does best. Um, and if he continues to do that, no, I don't have any questions about him. I will say, though, bro, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's all results-based. 
Like, if, I don't know, I'm just wondering if he had lost to the Nets. Yeah, this is a different season, but that doesn't matter. This matchup works for him. What? Why'd you make that face? No. Well, it was just when you said it's all results-based, because the individual results are what matter here. Like, even when they lost game two, I said, that's one of the best games he's ever played. And part of that is totally that he has cut out the bad shots. There were back-to-back threes in this last game, which I certainly did not enjoy. Early possession pull-up jumpers that was reminiscent of that net series and of course he's not flawless he's still more flawed than almost every other superstar there is but he also has more dominant unstoppable traits when he is at his best than most other superstars because of the physical tools so I'm just trying to put this all in perspective because again I've been a Giannis skeptic I've been in the scheme of things an anti-Giannis guy and I'm thinking about the players who I would have taken over him before this playoff run if I'm trying to win a title. I would have gone, and this is not necessarily in order, LeBron, KD, Kawhi, Steph, Jokic, Embiid, Luka, Harden. Maybe AD. Those are the eight or nine guys I would have taken over Giannis. And I'm trying to think about if I would rework any of that. It is tough because it's all about the opportunities you have. Because AD was viewed as a top five guy last year, in part because he was phenomenal on both ends throughout those playoffs, played the best basketball of his life, but he also had the opportunity to put that on display because he had LeBron James alongside him. Nobody else really had an opportunity like that. And right now, Giannis has had that opportunity that's opened up for him because of some of the circumstances that we discussed. So I don't know if he's proven undoubtedly that he's better than those guys or if it's just that the opportunity has presented itself for him to be great All I will say, so that I don't have to make it a comparative thing, is that I did not think he could do this, and he is doing it right now, and he is playing his best basketball ever, and I hope that he continues to do it because he deserves it, and I just love seeing great players be great. So even though the Bucs have not been my favorite team historically to watch, and Giannis has been certainly a factor for that, I'm really enjoying this right now, and he's doing special stuff. How about you? Has he leapfrogged anybody in that you now think, I want Giannis over this guy, when previously that was not the case? I want you to expand on it, and it's hard to do apples to apples, I know, because of how rosters are constructed around these different guys. So, like, if you, like, playoffs, you get you just get to take one player. Like, do you want Giannis, or do you want Donovan Mitchell? Giannis, 100%. 100%. And... Donnie still has the most important skill set when it comes to postseason basketball. Do you want Giannis or Devin Booker? I 100% unequivocally want Giannis. And here's the thing. Those guys can do the most important thing, right? Pretty consistently. And that is just go out there, get me a bucket to win a game. That is what you need unequivocally. But you also need somebody who can put you in the position to where those shots actually matter and who can make you a great enough team and who can make you the one seed and can get you to the conference finals and the finals by dominating those first 44, 45 minutes. And Giannis does that clearly at a very special level. And to me, he's not on the same tier as those guys. Like, those are guys who get more valuable in the playoffs, certainly. But Giannis is still on a different level as a player for the vast majority of the game. And especially with Donnie and Book, because those guys aren't like full offensive engines. You know, it's different if you're asking me James Harden or Giannis, Luka Doncic or Giannis, where those guys 
command the game and make everybody better and then also can close because I still think I'm taking both of those guys over Giannis even despite what we've seen from him in this run. But no, if I'm taking a guy who's just a great one-on-one shot maker or a guy who can dominate the game in as many phases as Giannis has shown that he can in this run and in these finals, I'm taking Giannis. What about you? Are those close calls? Yeah, they're close calls, but no, I think I still would take Giannis because of what he brings defensively. So, like, has he snuck into, like, your top five? Like, where is he officially? No, I actually don't think he's moved, which is interesting because I still have more faith in those guys to replicate it, and I still think that there are teams that can match up with Giannis and exploit what he can do. Like, we have seen in the last three rounds... Teams guard Giannis just with their big as the primary option, right? Planting Blake Griffin, Clint Capella, DeAndre Ayton in the paint and saying, okay, you have to go right at this guy. We'll give you the runway. We'll hope that you settle. And if not, we trust our guy enough in a one-on-one matchup. And I think that they've all been forced into that to a certain extent by personnel. Because if you do have great perimeter defenders who are strong enough as what the Heat had, where you're talking about Big guys, like thick, strong athletes like Iggy, like a Bam Adebayo, like a Jimmy Butler, or for the Raptors, just the exceptional perimeter defender that is Kawhi Leonard, it's different than a team like the Suns that has really good perimeter defenders like Macau Bridges, but who couldn't possibly physically hang with Giannis. I still think the ideal option is great perimeter defender on him and aggressively send help and quote-unquote build the wall in the half court. That's not what we've seen the Suns, the Hawks for the most part, or the Nets do. They're still obviously trying to keep him from the rim, but it's with more one-on-one defense. So I do think Giannis has benefited from that and has adapted after he initially really struggled with it and proven he can dominate in that respect. But there is still an answer for Giannis, maybe, in a way that there isn't for other players who are true superstar guys. Like, good luck trying to take Luka Doncic away. Good luck trying to take Steph Curry away. It just doesn't happen. It's just not doable. So because of that reason, I still would have Giannis in the 9 or 10 spot. But I don't want to dwell on that right now. I don't want to dwell on his flaws, who's better than him, and who I would trust more. Because his flaws aren't being exposed right now. All we're seeing is the good stuff from him. And that's what's so special and beautiful. And maybe in a different matchup, he would be getting exploited more. But he isn't right now. He's getting to the line. He's getting to the bucket. He's attacking in transition. He's playing great defense. Everything that makes regular season Giannis great is making finals Giannis great right now. And it's obviously more impressive when you're doing it on the biggest stage against a great defense trying to win a title for your team. So, I mean, with that being said, noticing that the Suns are going more one-on-one with Aiden, then would you change something? Would you tell Jay Crowder to try and build the wall? Like, uh, is I guess has Giannis been, uh, been too impactful to not make a change if you're Phoenix? It's interesting because last year, I really did think Crowder did a pretty good job on Giannis. And this year when I see Crowder on Giannis, I just feel like he's outmatched. I feel like he gets overwhelmed every time. So I think that they're doing the best that they can with Aiton. I just don't think it's the best defense that some other teams could play against Giannis that have better personnel. But maybe what we saw is two teams that really were exceptionally built to handle the Bucks in the Raptors and the Heat. And maybe this isn't a sustainable as far as his playoff shortcomings, what we expected, as I initially thought. I don't know. But the moral of the story is right now, what he's doing is special. I want to celebrate it. It's memorable, all-time stuff. And 
I think that that leads into another guy who we should celebrate for doing really memorable, unique stuff in his first time on a particular stage, and that is Devin Booker, who just went out there and set the all-time record for total points in a player's first postseason. I'll throw another lob to myself here, because while Giannis is having one of the great finals debuts, I think Book is having the most memorable playoff debut since? Question mark. My answer... Bill Walton. Logan threw a guess out there. I could not read his lips. What do you think, Logan? Your mind looks blown right now. Who are you going to throw out there? (laughs) I mean, like, I thought we had some pretty good recent options. I just, I was not expecting a Bill Walton poll at this point. Um, I was going to say, like, Trey Young from this season has been just as impressive. Like, Luka in his one series. I guess in saying that, like, you have to have guys who went kind of deep in their runs, so I, I think Trey's probably at the forefront of my mind, but nah, man, give me the Bill Walton take. Oh, hey, what's up, guys? It's Carson from the future here editing this episode. Going to intervene for the first time in Nerd Sesh history and just say, I forgot about Magic Johnson, so keep that in mind throughout this segment. Logan doesn't correct me because he's as much of a fool as I am, but that's the best first postseason ever, the most memorable, so yeah. So let me explain the important distinction here because I think that what Trey Young did this year was more impressive. I think what Luka did last year was more impressive as far as they showed their caliber as a basketball player to be higher, their ability to carry a team, their production. I think that they are a class above book in that respect. Trey, it's a little closer, but I think that what he did was more impressive. And there are certainly options that... The guy has been a better basketball player in his first time on this stage than Devin Booker. LeBron James, keep in mind, in 2006, went out and had the 48 special in his first postseason ever. Like, there have definitely been more impressive individual displays. But I think the key word here is memorable because of what you said. It takes getting too oftentimes the finals for things to be truly cemented in history. And presuming the Suns can get it done, people are going to look back And remember this forever, a 24-year-old in his first time there puts up 27 a game, is by far the leading scorer on a team that got it all done for a historically starved of a championship franchise. They'd never done it before. I just think that having your name on that Larry O'Brien trophy as a team is what people remember forever. And the last guy who we saw be the best or second best player on the team in their first go at the postseason was Bill Walton, who was on a completely different level as a player. Like, he was probably the second-best player in the world at that point, only to Kareem, and was changing the game on both ends, dominant scorer when he wanted to be, brilliant facilitator, unbelievable rim protector. But again, it's memorable. And I think that the Suns, to me, are still the slight favorite to win the title. And if they do that, that puts Book in a different class. But maybe not, because maybe I'm underselling how much people just remember all-time great players. Because, like, Lord knows there's enough people who will want to memorialize that LeBron performance, the 48 special again, and when Luka eventually goes down as one of the 10 best players ever, even though he ends up losing in six to the Clippers last year, he put up a phenomenal showing and showed what he could be and played like a top-10 guy in basketball. Book's not at that level. But, yeah, I think that getting to the finals and potentially winning it all is what people remember forever. Do you think that I have exaggerated that fact there and that it's not as big of a factor as I believe it to be? 
No, I just don't think I had considered it. Um, like, I don't know. Like, where do you think? I know we already brought him up, but like, where does somebody like D Wade? Uh, or no, D that wasn't his fine. That wasn't his playoffs debut. That was his finals debut. Then. I don't know, man. I'm searching my... Like, the only guy I can definitively say that, like, went to the finals and made a trip where I was really astounded in his first run was, like, last year. And that was in Tyler Hero. And that's nowhere near, like, what Book is doing. Yes, Hero was getting buckets, but it's mostly, like, catch-and-shoot jumpers, a screen, you know, shot off a dribble. No, I think you... I can't think of anybody that has carried a team like this. Because I think... Look, I said Aiden may be the finals MVP... Book has been the most important and the best player for the Suns this entire postseason, without a doubt. So, <laughs> I no, I can't think of anybody that has done this in their first finals run. Um, wow, man, just what a deep cut, bruh. A Bill Walden poll. I just think what you said about Hero is so reflective of how rare doing anything really historically significant in your first playoff run is. Because Tyler Hero is among the top 20 points scored in a debut playoff run of any player in history. And he was scoring like 16 a game because of how deep the Heat got there. And there were players before Walton who ended up getting to the finals in their first go-around. Rick Barry in 67, we already mentioned that. That team just was not good enough. But he scored 41 in the game in the finals. That dude is still just not sufficiently appreciated, Logan, everywhere but nerd sesh. Dr. J made the finals actually opposite Bill Walton in his first his quote-unquote first season, but it's his first NBA season. The dude was already a phenom. Everybody already knew he'd won three ABA MVPs, so I don't know that that really counts. So yeah, there just hasn't been that many. MJ was obviously a much better player than Booker in his first time around, and his second postseason, memorable even in defeat because of what he did to the 86 Celtics, scored 63 points in a game, playoff record, but that wasn't his first go-around. That was his second go-around. So I just scroll through my mind and I think, again, the thing that people remember from every season is who won the title and also who they faced. And then maybe MVPs, who had the most dominant regular season. But like Luka having a really great first round, LeBron even having the 48 special, Trey even doing what he did, it's just not on the same level as far as how it is memorialized forever. And I think that that's what's so wild about what Book has done in this run. So, there you go. There's a take, maybe. Most memorable playoff debut run since Bill Walton. Bill Walton, the guy who still isn't remembered as favorably as he should be either. I mean, maybe ever? No, I can't get there. Maybe <laughs> because of how fun Book is as a player, because of the era, like just how many more eyeballs there are on the sport right now. Finals games, I believe, in 77 were tape delayed. Like, the sport certainly was not where it is today. But if we are being honest about the more impressive, the more remarkable, what should be the more memorable run, at least, it should be Bill Walton. But maybe you're right, Logan, because not that many people remember the 77 Blazers for being as great as they were or the 78 Blazers for getting off to that 50-10 and 10 start and being as great as they were when Bill got hurt. And that's something that we seek to correct here on Nerd Sesh. Because sports history is a passion of ours. Even though we haven't been doing content throughout the summer, just wait until we're back together in Arizona. And trust me, there will be plenty then. All right. So let's zoom back into what we just saw. Because I think there's a couple things on the Suns that, while Book was so remarkable, you should be concerned about. So I'll ask you this, Logan. 
are you more concerned about CP being terrible in game four or Aiton playing a very timid game offensively in game four? You know, I'm not really concerned as much uh, with CP. We've seen the the scoring go sometimes. I mean, I think he's had it, – it hasn't been a while. I think it's been since the first series against the Lakers uh, where he had, you know, five single-digit scoring games. Um, he's still passing efficiently. Like, no, I don't expect Chris Paul to have as poor a performance. Like, this is an all-time just shitty Chris Paul performance. This was horrid. Um I expect him to bounce back. I expect him to, and I, you know what? I really expect Chris Paul to be mad at himself. I hot take here, yeah, sure. I just expect Chris to be fired up, gassed up because he's upset with how he played. He said that in the presser after the game. This one's on me. You know, five turnovers, ten points, seven assists. That's not a Chris Paul game. I expect him to bounce back. Honestly, Carson, I don't even know if my gripe with DeAndre Ayton is offensively. Yes, he was timid. He was settling for uh, free throw line jumpers. He was settling for elbow jumpers. I'm concerned with Aiden defensively because a lot of possessions where uh, if the Suns aren't getting that board uh, offensively and the Bucks get out on the break, by not playing Brooke Lopez, the Milwaukee Bucks allow themselves to play so much faster in transition. In so many possessions, I felt like you saw Giannis just streak down the floor, beating him there. There's nobody at the cup. Without Brooke Lopez on the floor, there's going to be a lot of more fast break points um, that, that come easy. I'm just confer- I'm concerned about Aiden defensively. And I don't know, like, he's either going to be effective out of the pick and roll or he's not. Aiden is not really that important when it comes to the Suns creating reliable offense. I am concerned defensively, though, because I think Giannis at the five, it doesn't expose them, but it makes life a lot harder on Phoenix because you're just counting on Aiton and Aiton alone, and he's going to get his rebounds. He had 17 last game. He's going to compete. It's just, can you stop Giannis by yourself? The answer thus far has been no, and uh, I'm worried the rest of the way if the Suns say, you know, put it all squarely on Aiton's shoulders. Yeah. I agree with you in that I'm not overwhelmingly concerned about CP. And he had a really bad game. I know that some people are speculating about the extent of his hand injury. Look, I'm just not with all of a sudden we care that people are dealing with some minor injury that he has said is a non-issue because he had one bad game. What did it affect? Can somebody point out to me what it affected in this game? Was it the touch on his jump shot? that was on, dead on through three games. Maybe you're going to say it's his handle. I'm somewhat skeptical of that. I think the turnovers were more a result of decision-making and recklessness. Like that last one, sure, he lost the handle, but it was more because he was just pushing the tempo unnecessarily in that moment. Uncharacteristic, maybe, but can you just point and say, yeah, that's because his hand is hurt, and again, he has said it's nothing to worry about. I'm not with that. I think he played a bad game. I think he'll be okay going forward. The Aiton thing is a little more concerning. And DeAndre Aiton has had such an interesting arc because he has been lauded, deservedly so, throughout these playoffs. The dude has been really, really good. Right now, it's kind of hilarious. He is the playoff leader in win shares. Win shares, terrible metric. Not one that I would recommend following closely. But pretty funny and certainly a mark of how good he's been and how effective he's been, his efficiency, his dominance on the glass, all of that, the things that the metric favors, and like why it says that Montrez Harrell's a top 15 player in the regular season is because of things like that. 
But I also think that his flaws have been on display. And I think you make a good point about Brooke being off the floor. And I do look at what he did offensively in this one, where six points on three of nine shooting, the dude doesn't get to the line. I'm going to harken back to what I touched on last episode, where he just has no faith in his ability to put the ball on the floor or to attack mismatch actually creating for himself. So he shoots the ball where he catches it from. Sometimes that's a tough little floater push shot. Sometimes it's a turnaround. That's not where he's at his best. He has to get deep position. He has to roll hard to the bucket. He has to clean up on the offensive glass. And then, yeah, he'll put it up from there. But he's not moving people. He's not cooking people out of the post. And that's always been a flaw in his game. But it was definitely on display in this one. I thought he still did a good job elsewhere. 17 boards, 5 assists, 3 blocks. Like, he did his best. But the lack of offensive difference making definitely does stand out in this one. All right, let's shift gears back to CP here, because just to be evil, we have now been given an inkling of a reason to throw this question out there after he had been so good early on in this series. But Logan, what happens to CP's legacy if he costs this team a title or if they can't get it done? Maybe he's not terrible, but he doesn't step up to the moment entirely. What does that do to this poor man's memory in this league? Am I at a line for saying that Chris Paul just becomes a lifetime meme. Like his career is just, if Chris Paul does not help put this series away, people are going to crap on him until the end of time. They're going to disregard his career like John Stockton. And I hate that we do this to ringless players, but it's true. Like people don't put Carl Malone in the pantheon of all time greats, despite his, despite, despite him getting to the finals, they don't put Stockton in the pantheon of great point guards traditionally because he just doesn't have that ring. They don't do the same thing with Steve Nash. And these are guys who, at the pinnacle of their powers, were offensive engines, tremendous shooters, great facilitators, like great point guards of all time. But you need the hardware. Like, I don't know, man. I, I don't, Carson, frankly, I don't want to imagine, I don't want to live in that world. Um... Chris Paul has to get this done or people are going to clown on this man relentlessly. I totally agree. We are, if that were to happen, he would become undeniably one of the most tragic figures in NBA history because obviously when he hadn't gotten to the conference finals, that in itself was just brutal given the caliber of a player that he was, but he'd also never gotten all that close. And then you had the moment with the Rockets which was obviously heartbreaking for different reasons, stuff that was out of his control. And that was a brutal moment. But now that he's here and they were the presumptive champions, it felt like at times, especially when people didn't think Giannis would be 100%, and everything did line up. If then he fell short, I just think you threw the guys out there, Malone, Stockton, Barkley... At least they all have their signature things that they will forever be remembered for. Carl Malone goes down as the number two scorer of all time and a two-time MVP. Obviously, Charles Barkley goes down as an MVP and just will always be remembered more fondly because of really his post-playing career, how prominent he remains. Stockton has the all-time steals record, the all-time assist record by far, having unparalleled longevity. What's Chris Paul going to be left with? He's not going to have that 20-year legacy with one team or that all-time record or Barkley's personality that has helped cement him. It's just going to be sad, man. And I really hope that we don't get there because he has had so many great moments in this run. And what's brutal is what you said. If the job is not finished, if he doesn't end up with that hardware, those moments, 
what he did to the Nuggets, what he did to the Clippers in closeout situations just will not be remembered as they should be, nor will his career as a whole because he's been undeniably great and whether or not he finishes the job here doesn't really change that. You know, it's just one box out of so many that you check in a career, but unfortunately it is thought of as the box for so many guys. Yeah, and Carson, uh, you said last night you know, in our um, group chat, are we going to give, you know, are we going to rag on CP? Are we going to hold him accountable? Um, and I think Chris Paul, uh, as you mentioned, has gotten a lot of passes historically, and it's not, it's with good reason, I'd say. Um, he's been hurt a lot in the playoffs, uh, a few years with the Clippers, uh, especially, you mentioned, with the Rockets uh, in the Western Conference Finals. He's not going to get that. Like I don't, I'm not going to buy whatever hand injury you try to pitch me. If Chris Paul loses this, this is I don't know. Like he's not going to. You don't get a pass here, bro. This is the finals. And I will say that I don't think he's gotten that much of a pass historically. I've said this before. I think he's been unfairly treated historically. But this year, he has gotten a pass time and again because people just want him to get it done. They want him to be the guy who finishes his career riding off on that beautiful pony into the sunset because we just root for the old guys, inevitably. And people have been much more willing to criticize Booker and to throw blame at anybody other than Chris Paul. And I was interested in seeing how do we react now that he was just downright awful. And I think that he got enough criticism. It's one game, just like we didn't say, oh, Devin Booker should be taken off of the pedestal we've put him on because he had an awful game three. We shouldn't do the same for Chris Paul in game four. He's been so much more assertive as a scorer, so brutally efficient, and just undeniable throughout this whole playoff run. But not a good moment, and I don't want to think about the reality in which it goes ugly down the stretch for him and the Suns here, but boy, if it did, man, he would just genuinely have maybe the most tragic legacy ever because of what I said in comparing him to those other guys. They have their signature thing they'll be remembered for. Are we going to remember CP's assist-to-turnover ratio, his State Farm commercials, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be for him. So uh, let's hope that it doesn't play out that way. Let's talk about a guy who has had his own struggles, much more so, in fact, throughout this run in these finals, and that's Drew Holiday. We've talked about it over and over again, but let's really answer a question here. All factors considered, has Drew Holiday proven himself a worthwhile investment for the Milwaukee Bucks? I guess. I mean... When you're considering the Drew Holiday situation, I think the first thing that you have to take a look at is just like how much of an upgrade over Eric Bledsoe is he? And he does one thing drastically better than Bledsoe. Bledsoe competes defensively. Drew Holiday is All-NBA uh, caliber defensively. And he has mm -hmm. made life really hard on Devin Booker this series. So I just say with the defense that he has given Milwaukee, yes, it has been a worthwhile investment. But Drew's frustrating to watch a lot of the time, bro. And it's not even just... It's not even just when Drew isn't shooting well because everybody has slumps here and there. You're going to miss shots. That happens. The most head-scratching and frustrating thing about watching Drew Holiday to me, Carson, is just when he's when he plays passive. And I think we saw a really passive Drew Holiday in this last game. Um, I think you can watch like the opening first quarter and just see Drew Holiday's passivity. I, Chris Middleton also had a few moments where he was a little passive, not in the fourth quarter. Um, not to get off topic, but I, I don't like these guys in their passive, and Drew was uh, a lot. He wasn't—there was this uh, part early in the game in the first. Uh, he gets into the paint, 
has a, I think Brooke Lopez dumps it off to him. Uh, Drew's right under the basket, like a foot away, really early in the first quarter. And Drew kicks it out to uh, Chris Middleton, who in turn has to take a hard contested shot off the dribble too. Um, that just can't happen, man. And Drew does that a lot where he has an open look and he just passes up on it or he's into the close into the rack and he gives it up. Yes, he has been a worthwhile investment because he has shown up when they've needed him. He has been an all-NBA caliber defender, but he is not a he has not been a a drastic offensive improvement over Eric Bledsoe. He's a moderate improvement. He passes the ball a little better, he shoots a little better, but uh, he has not been a drastic offensive improvement. He's been a worthwhile investment because he's been good enough, but he has not uh-huh. been he's not been excellent. He has not been elite. Well, he's certainly a lot better than Bledsoe. Like, I think that my expectation coming in when they made the move was he'll do everything Bledsoe does just better, and he won't hopefully shoot 24% over a two-year postseason stretch for you. Like, Bledsoe was a great defensive player. Drew's on a different level, though. Bledsoe was a good enough playmaker. Drew has had the best playmaking stretch of his career here. The shooting was a question mark for both of them. I mean, more so for Bledsoe. But there was never really a notion that Drew was a knockdown guy. He had the best regular season of his career from beyond the arc, 39% this season. And he has been just bad in the playoffs. Been under 30% there. Got better as things went along, but now has had some ugly showings from deep again. And I think when you look at, is it a worthwhile investment, you have to consider the haul that was given up. Two firsts, two swaps, RJ Hampton and George Hill And then also they threw Bledsoe in there, which was fine. That was inevitable. I guess that, yeah, it's a worthwhile investment. But the margin is pretty slim. If they don't get it done, I don't know. Because I don't think the opportunity will ever be this favorable again for the Bucs. And I should give credit where it's due to Drew because of what he did in games five and six against Atlanta, where he was phenomenal. But listen to all the games he's had in these playoffs where he has just been so off shooting, Logan. I'll read them all out to you. Game four versus the Heat, four of 12. Versus the Nets, he had a game where he was seven of 19, a four of 14 showing, a five of 23 showing. That one was in game seven, by the way, and he did end up making a couple shots down the stretch, but I think he was three of 19 at one point, three of 20. Versus the Hawks, he had a two of 11 game, a six of 17 game. And now versus the Suns, keep in mind they've only played four games. He's had a four of 14 game, a seven of 21 game, and a four of 20 game. That's nine of his 21 games where he's been under 37% shooting. And if we're going to judge him as a star, part of that is obviously because of the defense. And again, props to him for the passing. But as a scorer, he doesn't get to the line. Takes 2.6 free throws a game. He's been a bad finisher at the rim in these playoffs, under 56% in the restricted area. That's a crazy low number. Does not have a deep bag as a scorer. Doesn't have a ton to turn to in the mid-range area. He's been 37% there in these playoffs. Has an okay floater but by star standards, is lagging behind there, doesn't have a wild handle to create space with, doesn't have a reliable step back, doesn't have overwhelming quickness to where he can attack the bucket automatically whenever, can't reliably knock down a three off the catch or in pull-up situations. So you scroll up and down there, and you just think, maybe sometimes this guy just (laughs) actually shouldn't be handling a heavy load for this team at all offensively. You talk about his passivity, I wish that he hadn't shot 20 times last night. I wish that he had basically only looked to facilitate and then he gives you everything defensively and you use him as a mediocre catch and shooter. Like, I get that when Drew is on, 
when the mid-range stuff is falling, when he's consistently penetrating, creating for others, he's a really, really good offensive player. Like, I don't want to pretend that what he did against Atlanta down the stretch didn't happen or that his best moments aren't really good. By star standards, they're still not all that great, but he can be really good. But he has the seventh worst field goal percentage right now ever by a player with this many attempts in a single postseason and so many inexcusably bad games there. So I don't know what to make of him right now. I don't think they can win a title with him playing like this at this volume. Like, if he's going to just suck, and again, he won't do that every single game, but God, I can't trust him right now, then it has to be with him just blending into the crowd. Like, it can't be okay, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Giannis are getting equal touches, because that's what it is a lot of the times. It's, they're all running offense and stretches, and you just can't tolerate this kind of abysmal production if you're going to give him that kind of responsibility. So what do you think? Can they win it all with Drew at this level? Do you trust him to get better? Like, these are questions we've asked over and over again, but now in the finals, it's worse than it's ever been before. No, I, I don't trust Drew Holiday uh, at all. Uh, I trust him to do two things. Like you said, play, make, and play defense. Um, yeah. They can win a title with Drew playing like this because Drew is always going to be consistent defensively. And like you said, mm. he has been able to fall back in the crowd thus far. Like, I think if Drew continues to play this bad the rest of the series, you need a few things to happen to win. You need Chris Middleton to be on every night. Uh, Giannis cannot do this if he is the only guy knocking down and getting his shot. Uh, and I think you have to see an off night from one of the Suns' big three every game. Uh following Aiden, mm. Paul, or Booker. But yeah, I think that is totally a realistic possibility as to what happens in the rest of this series. We've got three, you know, potentially three games, and yeah, I can see Holiday sucking all three of them, and I can see Middleton and Giannis playing good enough to will them to a victory in two of those games. So yeah, I think that they can win the finals with Holiday playing at this level. Do you disagree? I kind of do. I just think it can't be this bad at this volume. Like, he can't shoot 20 times and make four shots. You're not going to survive many games like that. It's not sustainable, no matter how good Middleton and Giannis are. So, I think that he just needs to kind of get a gauge of where he's at offensively, I don't know, and then decide if he's going to actually try to be a star or if he's just going to be a role guy. I get that that sounds implausible. You need to have faith in yourself as a player. You need to believe in your game, and that's what he's going to continue to do. And by the way, again, against the Nets, as awful as he was, he made a couple big shots. I just never trust him to do it reliably. And I think as much as uh, I have made the struggles of him and Middleton a collective thing, because they've both been inconsistent throughout these playoffs, it has been on both of them. Drew has separated himself by being this atrocious in the finals, three or four games. And it's tough, man. If they don't win it all... I don't know if I can look at this core and say, yeah, just run it back. You'll have as good of a chance next year. But again, if they win, winning heals all wounds. It will not be remembered as it has been. And I think historically, when I am thinking about star-level guys who have been this bad in a postseason, first guy who pops into my head recently actually is Middleton in 2019 because of how bad he was against Toronto where he puts up 13 a game on 41% shooting. That was inexcusable. When Giannis was already struggling, that was just really, really bad from him. But the one guy who I think, interestingly enough, will never get as criticized for it as he should be because of the final result is Kevin Love. Maybe Drew Holiday can be Kevin Love, where a really bad postseason can end up being a net positive in your legacy. Like, you can pick 
any year out of Kevin Love's four playoffs with the Cavs, he wasn't good in any of them. He's a career 15-point-per-game postseason guy on 40% shooting, and in 2016, when they won the finals, he averaged 8.5 points per game in that series. So maybe that's Drew's dream situation, is he just ends up not hurting them enough, and they win it all. I think he's certainly better than Love. Certainly. And I think he does have an impact in all phases in a way that Kevin Love never did. Like, if he wasn't scoring, who cared that he was out there? Drew's going to fight on the glass. Lord knows he's going to make life hard on the other team to score. And he will get consistent enough penetration to where he can facilitate for others, kick out, find the open man, make the right decision. But, like, we're approaching really, really all-time bad stuff from him if he continues down this trajectory in these finals. And I will always think about the fact that they could have had Chris Paul. The Suns gave up less to get him. The Bucks went all in on Drew. It was a gamble. And I want to give a decisive answer and say he was or wasn't a worthwhile investment. I guess I will lean that he was, but ugh. Nah. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's just star players aren't supposed to be like this in the biggest moments. Bro, did you just pitch me, uh, like, like in a roundabout sort of way, did you just pitch me that Drew Holiday is basically like a souped-up P.J. Tucker Whoa, I don't think I pitched you that at all. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I don't know, bro. Like, with the, I don't know, with the K-Love averages, low-key similar to PJ, like, I'm just saying, <laughs> a lot of the props you gave to Holiday were on the effort mm-hmm. end, and PJ Tucker is an effort guy. I, that's all Oh, I'm I was saying. saying it would be insulting to PJ, because he actually makes his corner threes. <laughs> no, no I mean, of course... No, I'm just kidding. Drew has saved the Bucks' season in stretches. Like, against Atlanta, they're not coming out on top in those last couple games without him playing like he did. But boy, that can only cover things up for so long. And uh, I think it's more than effort because I do think, I mean, he has special tools and the playmaking is impressive. And he's a strong guy. Like, that's the one thing. I listed off all the things that compared to other stars, he doesn't do well. He is strong and he does have a knack for getting to the bucket. Like... He doesn't always explode there. It doesn't feel like he gets guys on his back, but he just kind of finds his way into the paint and then can make decisions from in there. But he just needs to stick to what he's good to here. No more tough efforts at shot making from the mid-range floater area from Drew. I just don't need it. Like, take good shots at the rim, take spot-up threes, play make for other people. Even that, I don't know if the shots will fall, but geez, Louise, it'd be nice if they did for the Bucs. Let's talk about the other guy who has been Mr. Spotty throughout these playoffs. Overall, has Chris Middleton been better than you expected, worse than you expected, or pretty much what you expected in this series? Exactly what I expected. Inconsistent. He's going to show up big one game. He's going to make me change my mind and go, oh, yeah, man, I trust Chris Middleton again. He's my guy. I'm rocking with him the rest of the series. Chris Middleton's confusing, bro. But, yeah, it's exactly what I expected. He's, in many ways, and this is a weird comp I didn't expect to make, man. Like, I see a lot of parallels uh, between him and D-Book. And I don't just mean, like, with production, but just, like, how they get their shots. It's so much difficult shot-making, and when it's on, both of these guys can swing a game easily because they are going to be unstoppable in getting to their spots. No matter what hands you put up, they're going to hit it in your face. But it's what they do. Like, Middleton is just an inconsistent player who is good at making tough shots some nights. Um, That's exactly what I've expected out of this series. The 40-point game... That's what's so messed up about Middleton. I, you know, you feel bad for not treating him like a star, and then he goes off for forty, and you're like, well, can I expect it every night? 
No, you can't. But every once in a while, Chris Middleton will surprise you, and I really wouldn't be surprised if in the next three games if we have another explosion. For me, this is a trick question because I have no expectations for Chris Middleton. (laughs) If I do have expectations, though, it's chaos. And, you know, this has been a somewhat chaotic series from him. Game two, he was very bad. Game three, he was kind of just there, didn't actually have all that pronounced of an impact on the game. The Bucs just played a really good all-around performance. And games one and four, he's had pretty impressive volume shooting nights. Game four was obviously on a different level because of the final result and the stage in which he did it. But yeah, he's a special player sometimes. He's a very forgettable player at other times. Sometimes not forgettable and that he is so bad when his team needs him to be good that that becomes part of his legacy. But I think that props to him, man. He's putting up his 24 game or whatever and the efficiency hasn't been atrocious and it's definitely been redeeming for him, I would say overall, because of how bad he had been in some previous postseason situations, in closing situations, times where he had just been shaky and over and over. So yeah, you couldn't expect that to continue forever. He's inconsistent. He's wild. But as you say, I wouldn't be surprised if he scored 40 in a Game 7 of the Finals. And if you score 40 in Game 7 of the Finals, people remember you as clutch forever. Like, this is what I touched on in the Middleton video. James Worthy went from being remembered. He was obviously always a great player on great teams. But there was a time when the most memorable play in his career was a terrible turnover at the end of a Finals game. And now we all call him Big Game James. And he had to do some work to undo that reputation, but it has now been completely undone because he then stepped up in the biggest moments in the finals later. So this is the opportunity for him to cement his legacy. And he definitely took a step in the right direction in Game 4. But overall, pretty much about what I expected. So let's ask one more question here about the Bucs. Not about any of their stars, but about the depths of their rotation. Logan, should we be seeing more Bryn Forbes right now? You know it, bruh. You know it. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, I don't know if we talked about this actually on the pod or if we just had a side conversation about this. Yeah, man, it's time for the Jeff Teague minutes to to just go. He doesn't He doesn't do anything for this team. He's slow. He's not shifty anymore. He doesn't really get downhill. I hate it when he has the ball in his hands because I know a turnover or a bad shot is coming. Um, you should just take away Jeff Teague's minutes and, and give them to Brent Forbes because, uh, again, I believe you said this, Carson, if you're going to use him exclusively as an off-ball shooter, again, when Teague is on the floor, the ball isn't in his hands. It's in Giannis's hands. Like, yeah, bro, just play Brent Forbes. He is a much better shooter. Jeff Teague is also a defensive liability. So go all in on shooting. And, I mean, when you're getting spotty shooting from Drew, from B.J. Tucker, from Bobby Portis sometimes, from Giannis... Bryn is a game-changer, a genuine game-changer, and not even just on the Bucks side, because we have seen a lot of spotty shooting from the Sun side. When CP3 goes cold, when Book goes cold, when Jay Crowder goes cold, like, Bryn Forbes could swing a game because, like, I don't care, bro. When Bryn Forbes takes eight shots, it's probably a good eight shots, and he's probably knocking down four to five. That's 12 to 15 points just because he's on the floor. I trust Bryn Forbes a whole hell of a lot to knock down an open three-pointer. And when teams are sketchy, when Giannis can collapse a defense like he can and create those consistent shots, Bryn Forbes could be an invaluable piece in a rotation. Even if it's just 12, 15, 20 minutes, if you're just simply subbing Teague's minutes out, Bryn Forbes is so much more of a valuable asset and a plus than Jeff Teague. I think 
playing Bryn Forbes is a is a no-brainer. Yeah. Some of you may be thinking, why are you guys talking about this again? Carson already went on an impassioned rant about Jeff Teague and how bad he is last episode and why Forbes is such a better option. The reason is because Bryn Forbes got a DNP coach's decision in game four, along with Mamadi Diakite, Tanasa Antetokounmpo, Justin Jackson, Jordan Wara, Axel Tupan, and Elijah Bryant. Those are the DNP coach's decision. Not on that list, Jeff Teague, who played 11 minutes. I don't understand this. I don't understand how you go eight deep without playing Bryn Forbes. Blows my mind, especially when they've just had a lack of bench punch in general because Bobby has not been great offensively. He was good in game three, but like not even insane given what you expect from the Portman crazy eyes kill a Bobby Portis. So, yes, if Jeff Teague is playing 11 minutes, give all 11 to Bryn Forbes. Enough said on that. Let's move on. And let's talk about something that is actually intertwined to a comment you just made about the sketchy shooting. Because that has been a story of these finals. Neither team has been bombing away from deep. Do you think that that's made these finals more fun in an interesting way? Yeah, definitely. And it's not, again, it's not that they're not bombing away threes, although I will say that... uh, Sometimes guys on these teams are reluctant. I just think it's special that, yeah, one, that they're not hitting the shots, but two, that that's not really how these offenses, it's not the crux. And it's weird because the Bucks were such a good team at creating these looks and knocking them down in the regular season. And now we've seen a real stylistical change to where it's just kind of put the ball in Chris Middleton's hands and let him create or barrel inside to Giannis. But I do think it makes it special because it makes these games so much more grimy or so much more intense. It means more. Like, this last game was so intense because it was, it's just so hard to get buckets. That game came down to the wire. Every bucket is grimy. Every board is so important. I love grimy, defensive, hard-nosed series. I think everybody does. Like, I... I personally, I love it when teams are missing three-pointers because it means that they're going to go away from it and they're going to try to knock down a tough midi. You're a midi fiend. I know you can relate, Carson. It's yeah. It's not like threes are boring when guys are knocking down shots. And like when Chris Paul got hot and went six of seven, yeah, that was really interesting to watch. But I like it more when you're getting dynamic shots. And we've seen a lot of that this series. And we have seen the buckets just mean more because they're hard to get. And... I want to hear your answer to this, but I also want to know, like, do you think it's like your team, are they just not shooting as well? Like, do you think if, because it's not like the teams are strapped for getting open looks. Are we just simply seeing them not knock down shots or are we seeing them shy away from them? Well, I think that it's a couple things. Neither offense is predicated necessarily on three-point shooting. The Bucks definitely were to a certain extent in the regular season. They're among the top five and threes made, and they were very efficient from there. And the Suns had shooters up and down the roster, but they were always relatively built on the CP book work inside of the arc. Like, they were 13th in the league and three-pointers made in the regular season, much more average in that respect. But this stretch here has been a different level of just not having really impactful or reliable shooting from beyond the arc. The Bucks have made 11 and a half threes a game on under 35% shooting, and the Suns have made one more three in total, they're under 12 a game as well, at under 37%. So I'm not going to sit here and say that bad shooting is fun and that I don't want to see good offense. What I have enjoyed about it is, as you mentioned, the variety of bucket getting that we're seeing inside the arc as a result of the fact that neither of these teams are just hucking up 
50-something threes a game like we saw in Jazz Clippers, for example. Like, that was fun too, but it was more formulaic, more predictable. I love watching Middleton and Book duel. I love watching CP Cook out of the pick and roll. I love watching Giannis attack the bucket right now. Like, there's just a variety there that's pretty cool. And that's interesting because one of my previous criticisms of the Bucks was that they were so formulaic, that it was so much about Giannis driving kick and guys around him just knocking down shots. But that's different now with Drew, even when he's off, he's going to infiltrate the painted area and try to create. And Chris, again, is a really exciting late game shot maker. So yeah, I've enjoyed it. But I do think that they're creating good enough threes, both teams. Like when they do opt to take them, they just aren't really falling. And I wouldn't be opposed to seeing more of those shots go in. Like I'm not going to say I prefer 35 and 37% shooting to 42% shooting. Although I will agree with you in that it does add something to the air of suspense and drama where every bucket does mean a little bit more. Generally, I'm still in favor of good offense. What I like is that neither team needs to just make 40% and 15 threes a game to be good. I thought maybe the Bucks would be in that tier, arguably. They haven't, though they've been so dominant in the paint and with Middleton in those late-game situations, mostly just in Game 4, but it could happen again. And I've enjoyed that. And look at that. Yet another reason to play Brent Forbes. Yeah. No, seriously. It, totally. It's He absolutely has the skill set to swing a game, to swing a couple games in a series. Jeff Teague, yuck, yuck, yuck. None for me, thanks. All right. So is there anything else that you think has just made these finals so special? Because, I don't know, maybe you're not as high on how fun this has all been as I am. Maybe I'm just generally thrilled anytime we get to the finals. But I am fired up. Even with the three-day layoffs between games that could sap some of the momentum, I'm just I'm just happy to be here, man. I'm just happy that it wasn't... I know, like, I'm rooting for the Suns just because I like them more. I do want to see CP3 get this ring, but... Uh, no, I'm, I'm juiced up that it's competitive because, yeah, out the gate, I was with a lot of these Suns fans, not in the sense that I thought they were just going to run away with it, but... I thought the Suns were going to be up 3-1. I am gassed that it's 2-2 because I think, again, we're going 7. It's to see these guys, like, I don't know, man. When you see guys playing a game 7 in the finals, it's just we're literally going to see these guys on the biggest stage of their career. And it's so, and it's brand new. That's what I, like, I know that people are talking about all these new players that have never appeared in the finals. And, you know, nobody has a ring. We're finally going to, we're going to get new guys with new rings. But we're going to be able to see new guys under pressure. And that's the that's the beauty of this is the most intense pressure in basketball. We're going to get to see new faces. I think that's the I think that's what makes this series so unique and so much fun. Yeah, man, kind of stuff that gives you chills, and it's still not going to be totally real to me until we see one of these players holding up that Larry Ob trophy, and it sinks in that they've actually done it. Because it's just wild. It feels different than so many finals before. It's so unique in how the game has been played, in the guys who are there, how these teams were constructed. And I am loving it. So, let's drill this down here. We've talked about a lot of this stuff throughout this series, throughout this pod. But at the end of the day, what factor, what factors do you expect to decide this series down the stretch now that we are here in effectively a best of three? I think three-point shooting could definitely decide one of these three games. I think the biggest factor is going to be rebounding. Um, mm-hmm. The offensive board battle, as you mentioned earlier, the Bucks are winning it by a lot. And it is the at the forefront the biggest reason why they have won these past two games. If the 
Suns do not rebound well defensively. Again, I don't want to see this because I want Chris to get this ring. It could be Bucks in six. And mm-hmm. if they don't make that, I, I think I just think the rebounding battle is going to decide this. Yeah, I agree. That's a massive component. Shooting, of course, because we still haven't seen that game where everything is falling from deep for either team. Like the Bucks shot it pretty well in game three, but it still wasn't like, oh, wow, this is just over out of the gate. I think that rebounding is massive because the Suns have to at least be competitive in that respect. And if they're not, like you can only give another team so many second chances. I think that shooting, yeah, of course, is massive. And I will say, this is another obvious one, but which stars show up? And who do you trust more in that respect? That's why I've been a guy who leans Suns throughout, is I just trust on it more night to night from CP, from Book, and from the supporting cast of the Suns. I feel like I say that at the end of every episode, every discussion, but it is true there is that little bit of a gut feeling that I lean on there, but it's really tight right now. And I do think that the Bucks may be more prone to having a shooting game where they're just on fire. I should say, actually, the Suns did have a game like that in game two. Like, they were raining triples for a lot of that one. So, I think it comes down to the same things we focused on. And making sure that the Bucks can't be crazy effective in transition, being efficient with your transition opportunities if you're the Suns. And for Book and CP... It would be nice if they could find a way to a little more of the easy stuff because for Book to get 42, it took one of the most dazzling displays ever. He didn't impact the game in other phases. One rebound, two assists. He got to the line, deserves credit for that, and played a really great all-around game. But there's a lot on their shoulders, and yeah, it's going to be about who plays the best out of those guys, who wins the glass, who can knock down those threes. And uh, right now, I am going to stick Suns and Seven, There is a part of me that thinks Giannis could go supernova. Chris could have signature moments. And maybe they get a little help shooting from beyond the arc from the rest of the crew. But I think that there's as many worlds in which CP and Book go crazy. And I just think the Suns have more guys who can step up from the Bridges, Crowders, Cam Johnson, campaigns on down. So I'm sticking with my initial prediction. Are you feeling the same way, Suns and Seven? A hypothetical Game 7 in this series scares me. I'm going to stick Suns in seven, but the most consistent performer on the basketball floor out of all of these guys throughout the entirety of the playoffs and these finals has been Giannis. And Mm -hmm. you can rely on Giannis to show up game to game, night to night, and in game seven. You can't say the same about anybody else in this series. Another reason why it's so unique. Another reason why, yeah, a a Suns Bucks game seven scares me because Giannis scares the living hell out of me because there's no answer for him. Um, I'm going to stick Suns in seven. I trust CP3 and Book more than I trust. Yeah, like, like you just said, bro, than the Bucks supporting cast. But I will say, bro, I think that if we get another cold stretch from like CP3 or Book, I think that the Suns have to rely on their role players a little more. Maybe not to create just to get them open shots. Like, Cam Johnson, I think, has played a hell of a last two games and has knocked down some tough shots. And I think they need to turn to him. I think they need to turn to... The Suns need to rely on their supporting cast if their two big stars are struggling because that is where they win the battle. They are so much deeper than the Bucks. Totally. And uh, I do just still have a bit of a gut feeling, like I've said before. Offense hasn't come super easy to either of these teams throughout the playoffs. Sometimes it feels like it comes a little bit easier to the Bucks, But, I don't know, a grinded-out Game 7? You're right, Giannis has been the most dependable player on the floor. But think about the closeout games we've seen. 
from the Suns duo. Like, those have been their signature moments. Each of them has played their best game in a closeout situation. Book goes out and has 47 to close out the Lakers. Then CP has, I believe it was 37 against the Nuggets, and then 41 against the Clippers. You know, that's only three games, but it's certainly a pattern that's worth looking out for. So if we get there, we'll have plenty more to talk about. For now, though, just fantastic basketball, man, and a finals that has certainly been validated, this matchup. And we've seen what both these teams are capable of, and it's really great basketball from some really great players. Can't wait to see how it all plays out. If you want to stick along with us for the journey of seeing how this all wraps up, you may know where to find us. If you don't, if you somehow just stumbled upon this, perhaps you didn't realize what button you clicked and now you've hung around for an hour, 20-something minutes, you can check out our podcasts on YouTube. We post the full things there. You can listen to us only in audio form on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your audio content. You can see on our YouTube channel other video content that we make. I just cranked out a video on how Giannis is playing his best basketball ever. You can certainly go and check out. You can follow us on social media, Twitter at nerd underscore sesh, Instagram at nerd sesh, TikTok at nerd sesh, where Logan has been making some very cool content. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.